Welcome to another episode of the Worklife Podcast. To find out more about the Worklife Hub and to listen to other episodes, please go to www.worklifehub.com. Welcome to another episode of the Worklife Hub Podcast. I am your host, Agnes Uheretsky. If this is the first time that you are tuning in, let me just say a few words about this podcast. We speak to authors, researchers, business thought leaders, for them to share their knowledge and insight on work-life balance, leadership, culture change and organizational development. In our work at the Worklife Hub, we help companies reform their workplace to create a culture that embraces diversity and work-life balance. We are passionate about building vibrant and engaging workplaces that are great for employees and customers. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can do this via Twitter at WorkLifeHub, on our LinkedIn page or on our website. We're always happy to hear how you like the podcast or any other ideas that you would like to share with us. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the listeners of the WorkLife Podcast. This is your host, Agnes. And we have another exciting episode here for you. Today, I'm going to be chatting to Caroline Webb. Hello, Caroline. Hello, Agnes. It's great to be with you. I'm very excited and very happy to to have the chance to record this podcast episode with you, Caroline. Caroline is an economist and a former McKinsey partner. She's the CEO of Seven Shift, an economist and an executive coach. And we are going to be speaking about Caroline's new book, which uh, just came out in February 2016. And it's called How to Have a Good Day. Harness the power of behavioral science to transform your working life. So for the Work Life Hub and the listeners, this is is a topic we would totally be geeking out on. (laughs) And before we go more into the details of the book and, and some of its juicier um, uh, details. I just wanted to ask you, Caroline, would you mind sharing with the listeners about your career, your journey, and how you took on this uh, quite a huge task, but at least seems to me to be to be writing this book? Well, it's true that writing the book pulled together a lot of threads of my life, you know, things that perhaps hadn't been woven together as tightly before. I, I had a first career as an economist, and I was always fascinated by economics because it was a a sort of rigorous way to think about human stuff. Uh, But over time, I had a bit more of the craving for the human side of economics and a tiny bit less for the mathematical side. And so after a a first career, I actually took a a leap and moved into management consulting with a really clear goal that I would go to McKinsey to do organizational effectiveness consulting. So I would really uh, dive into what is it that makes uh, an organization, a team, an individual really uh, effective, thriving, performing at their best and so on. And I only meant to go for a couple of years, you know. <laughs> I think everybody everybody imagines that when they go, go into consulting. But I actually found my thing. I found my niche. I loved it. I loved the variety, working with so many clients in so many different sectors and industries. And I was able to carry on doing a lot of public sector work alongside private sector work. And I developed a a career through McKinsey through my 12 years there, which was focusing on behavioral change of all types. And 
my thing was always using the scientific evidence because I had that background as an economist, but I also did some additional training in psychology and um, neuroscience when I got qualified as a coach. And I found that people would just, it, it would unlock something to talk about the, the scientific evidence behind the reasons for doing something differently in the way that we might approach our day, might approach a meeting, might approach a, the way we interact with our colleagues. And then they would say, is there a book that describes this kind of science mm -hmm. into practice stuff? And I could point them towards amazing pop science books that have been quite influential in my life. But I couldn't point them towards anything that was doing specifically this translation of the research into practical advice about how to live your life. So I knew there was a need. And then talking about the strands of my life being woven together, I always liked writing, actually. So, you know, a lot of people ask me, did I write it myself? And <laughs> me, that was such a funny question because, I mean, that was part of the pleasure of it. I mean, you know, I, I always liked writing uh, creative stories when I was a kid. I never thought it would come to the center of my life but uh, but writing the book has really allowed me to tap into that side of myself. So that's 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 everything that led to the book in the end. I'm not surprised that you get the question because, um, I mean, it's it it seems to be such um, a really ambitious task already. You know, when when you start, uh, I myself was listening to it on Audible. So when I was listening to it, I was like, oh, my goodness, you know, how did you, st you know, the the first kind of chop, you know, where do you begin in that big forest? Because, I mean, it's it, it I, I'm just wanted to really acknowledge and express my my respect, because what you just said, you know, also before in today's um, abundance of information on the on the Internet, then we know that people are searching for uh, burnout, they're searching for you know, as you say, how to have a good day, a day searching for how to have a, a fulfilling working life. But there's a lot of these quick fix, very superficial kind of five, you know, the, these are the five things successful people do before breakfast, right? And if you're someone who is a professional, um, <laughs> it is quite, um, you, you get skeptical about those after a while, you know, you think, okay, come on, there isn't a quick fix society associates work and success with with struggle with pain and with sacrifices so i think that what you have done really made this kind of as you say this bridge or this leap from the lab the laboratory to very practical daily experience of people well thank you that that's definitely what i was trying to do and i mean don't get me wrong there were times during the project where i thought my goodness i have de decided to Synthesize, you know, all of the major developments in social aspects and behavioral aspects of neuroscience, uh, psychology and, and economics, and think about everything that goes into making a good day. I do think a uh, big job <laughs> occasionally. But then, you know, you say, well, where, how did I know where to start in the whole forest of, of that? I mean, partly it was easier because I'd just been doing the work for 15 years with clients. So I knew what works and I knew what really made a difference to them when they were thinking about how to raise their game or, or develop, you know, more well-being in their lives. And so that really helped just the very practical experience working with hundreds of people. It, it helped me understand what to prioritize and what to focus on within that, because there was lots that I didn't put in the book. Um, it was uh, really a question of chopping things back until I really felt that I had what was essential and what was universal also. Great. So basically, you 
you knew kind of the formula that's going to make a difference and then you went backwards into explain, explaining it scientifically? Well, yes and no. I mean, like the science was always, you know, running absolutely alongside the advice, right? I mean, even when I was doing the work with my clients, I was always using the science to check that what I was saying wasn't just, you know, fine words and also to help them see the, uh, the, you know, some of the exciting reasons why they might have their brain function more effectively if they try this rather than that. And so it was always running along in parallel, but there were definitely times when I decided not to put something in the book because I felt that actually it wasn't a universal piece of advice. Mm -hmm. Or maybe that I found it difficult to really integrate in my life and I didn't feel that it was therefore right to, to put it in the book. Uh, and then there were other areas where the science was really a little shaky um, or under pressure at the, at the moment. And so I decided to play it quite safe, uh, but I think also quite carefully to make sure that everything that's in the book is, is, is unlikely to change, even though science, of course, marches forward uh, day by day, year by year. Uh, so there were quite a few choices on what went in and what, what stayed out. <laughs> And what do you think makes your book so timely? That's a good question. Um, I mean, some of the some of the surveys that are out there are really shocking. You probably have seen the Gallup State of the Global Workplace survey, which talks about only 13% of people globally feeling engaged by their work. Now, of course, that that's employees. That's not doesn't include um, entrepreneurs. Um, but still, it's a remarkable figure, and it also is interesting to note that when you look at the demographics, uh, the people with higher education levels aren't you know, scoring better. It sort of resonates with my experience of working alongside smart, aspirational people over many years, that, you know, to see that they had sometimes quite a strong sense of direction in their, in their professional lives, but the day-to-day -day experience wasn't that much fun. And they, they had a sort of belief that they just needed to suck it up and, mm. and deal with it, and that this was part of, part of you know, being successful. And so I became very interested in what it would take to actually make the day-to-day -day experience more satisfying as well as successful. And I, I think that, um, you know, obviously there are sort of pressures on that. There's pressure of always being on and the, uh, the way that technology has transformed our lives for the better, but also brings all sorts of new challenges. Um, so I think that there are, um, you know, there are pressures that perhaps are genuinely slightly new. Although earlier generations, you know, if you go back, you see this time and again, every time there's a technology leap, you know, even going back to the time of books, uh, books being developed for the first time, people throw their hands up and say, oh my goodness, this is going to be too much information, we can't possibly cope. <laughs> so I think what happens with every generation with the technological advances around information flows is that we figure it out. We figure a way to handle ourselves and the information. So with books, you know, the fact that it was possible to develop an indexing system made it made books feel less less terrifying, uh, and so on. So you know, we're in the process, I think, of trying to figure out how to be at our best in this newly connected world. And I think we are figuring it out, but we've still got a little way further to go. Yes, uh, that's totally resonates with with what my impression was. Is that 
we have all these systems and tools, but we there were no manuals that came with them. And yeah. it was great when, you know, I started working and I would get two emails a day and then three <laughs> faxes and write another four letters. But and we were just so excited by every email. But when you get about 500 a day, you know, there yeah. was no nobody who would say, OK, this is just too much. And so I, 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 I jotted down about your book. What, what comes to me comes it's, it's a Bible for the modern worker. You know, yeah, it's, absolutely. It's, it's our modern times, our modern lives. And, and, and I think some of the tools that you give and some of the advice and, and science you capture are quite um, almost old wisdoms about, mm. you know, you know, stop and think before you act, <laughs> take stock what's around you. And, and, and I think that's, you explain it so well about how our, our, our kind of not dinosaur, but prehistoric brains are all of a sudden in a totally new kind of jungle and what stimulus comes and then how we process them. And, but they are maybe totally inappropriate in a meeting room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, that's exactly how I do think. I think of it as a manual to modern working life and I define work also pretty broadly, you know, what yeah. I think of work as being anything that you're trying to get done, whether that's in a family or community setting or, you know, if you're a student or a retiree, I think, you know, it's all about figuring out how you can make the most of your, most of your time on the planet, one might say. And, uh, and so absolutely, I think of it as a manual to figuring out how to thrive. That's, a, <laughs> that's my private language for the book. No, absolutely. I, and I, I couldn't agree more. Um, now, maybe coming back a little bit to your personal experience, and I guess this is also what partly motivated the book, but why would you, what, what is your opinion? Um, there is so much evidence, and, and you lay it out beautifully there, but why hasn't this trickled into action? Why, why you know, we know there's all this evidence that the way we work, the way we consume has very negative effects on our health, on our well-being, on child well-being, uh, anything. Um, but why is it still so difficult to change our ways of, of, of doing things, of, of reacting to it, of, of behaving? Well, I think that there are two, two separate answers to that. I think, first of all, um, it's actually not as commonly understood or known. Mm. As, as you might think, it's it's always easy when you know you know, um, for example, that uh, we, we need breaks, and you know that multitasking is a bad thing for our brains, and and so on. You know, once you know this stuff, it's hard to imagine not knowing it. But actually, one of the catalysts for writing the book, as I mentioned, was my clients being absolutely fascinated and surprised by some of the things that I was saying. And I was in turn surprised that by the fact that they didn't know these things. Mm. So for example, um, you know, I thought that everybody understood how the, you know, the threat defense mechanism works in the brain when we're feeling at all threatened. The fact that, you know, it doesn't have to be a mammoth charging at us anymore. It can be simply someone cutting us off in a meeting. It'll make us feel threatened. And then we will launch uh, a fight, flight, or freeze response, which can, in the workplace, look like a snappish comment. Or maybe we just stay silent and maybe we sulk. These dysfunctional behaviors are almost always a response to something which is being perceived as a threat. And then, of course, it 
explains so much of what seems to be awful about day-to-day life in the way that you're navigating it, but also what you're experiencing and interacting with other people. I thought this was known very widely, but it really wasn't. And so I think that's part of the first problem. Uh, that, that That's, you know, the first answer to, to the question, which is that actually I don't think it's really known. I don't think people know that actually by taking a, a you know 10 15 minutes of aerobic exercise just walking briskly they actually boost their mood and their ability to focus and analyze immediately i don't think people know that actually mm. um i think people know that exercise is kind of something one should do um but i don't think they realize that it actually yields some some bets and benefits that are so useful in the middle of a difficult day or in the middle of a difficult problem um, that you're trying to solve, and, and so on. So I do think that there's actually just a job of just laying out the evidence really clearly. But the second answer is, I mean, change is difficult. Um, there's no doubt. And, you know, we we have brains that are always trying to take shortcuts because the world is very complex. And so left to, left to ourselves, we will repeat what we've done before because that means it can be done automatically, and that uses a lot less mental energy. And... If once we know that, we can be a little kinder to ourselves, I think, about the fact that that's our brain trying to be efficient. And if we want to change, we can. And it's really remarkable how much flexibility and plasticity the brain has. But there are certain things that it needs in order to not be on autopilot. So uh, as you know, at the back of the book, I've got this section which is purely about this, about the importance of making sure that anything you're trying to do feels rewarding even if it's like if it's a new approach to a meeting doesn't look quite as well as you hope or maybe you remember halfway through the meeting that you should have done something differently you need to pat yourself on the back because you remembered (laughs) next time maybe you'll take a slightly sort of uh, a step forward that goes a little further but if you don't pat yourself on the back then the experience doesn't feel rewarding and all the evidence suggests that if the change doesn't feel rewarding then it won't be repeated and uh, repetition is crucial for laying down new pathways in the brain and using cues, reminders that, that trigger uh, new connections in your brain. You know, so that there's a, there is a science to this, to, to knowing how to make change feel easier. And once we know that and don't feel as if we have to beat ourselves up every time we try something new and it isn't perfect, then I think that we can be kinder to ourselves and more realistic about what it takes to change, which is usually small steps, really specific experiments that you're you're trying out and making sure that you are you know, generous and rewarding of yourself uh, for every effort that you make. I, I absolutely agree. And one thing that we always also talk about, because we, our mission is, of course, also to achieve change in, in you know, from coming from the work-life balance angle, but ultimately to change working cultures, to be more permissive, to allow more for people to bring their whole selves to work, uh, whether they're carers or parents. And and um, and I think that what you say really resonates. But what we have found is that you have, on the spectrum of companies and organizations, you have startups and the cool kids on the block like Google and Airbnb and you know those who have already been founded on you know being quite uh, cognizant of these um, maybe uh, Mm. intuitively or by purpose I don't know but they they are aware how you know that you just have 
everybody wins if people feel yeah. well at work if they can every day you know believe they've accomplished thing they're left alone to do their work creatively uh, using their best abilities etc um and then you have maybe companies that are going through some kind of crisis so in the change process just to pull back from the brink they would maybe also open windows oh so th this is also there so let's let's try to incorporate that but just coming in my long uh, answer here is that there's also just so many so many companies in the middle that mm. are quite still dormant right yeah. to any yeah. of such um change initiatives or, or or scientific evidence but i believe that they will be sooner or later woken up because we have this global race for talent there is i think in a general a kind of an awakening of of more well-being and and more wellness in all-rounded wellness as well as as just wanting as, as, as kind of an awakened quest for quality of life just a better quality yeah. of life so so i think that what your book does so beautifully is is it speaks to the mainstream yeah i hope so i mean i was really trying to write for people who don't know anything about this stuff while also writing for people who already know a little bit about it yeah. so you know really trying to strike that strike that balance and it's one of the reasons i tried to pull out three big cross-cutting science themes to kind of frame all of the ideas in the book uh, to help those who, who, are, who are quite new to this. And um, yeah, I think, you know, I think that it will, over time, become a competitive advantage to understand a little behavioral science so that you can be at your best yourself, but also get the best out of the people around you. I think you know, it's very clear to me that when I meet a leader who is getting extraordinary things from his team and is creating a wonderfully sustainable platform for performance, he or she almost always understands whether instinctively or whether because they've read you know, books like mine, they understand what it takes to, to really help people, to help human beings thrive. And they just have a basic understanding how the brain works, what, what happens under pressure, you know, the link between the body and the mind, what, how, how to help um, the more sophisticated aspects of our brain uh, function function at its best, what I call the deliberate system, all the things we do deliberately. And, you know, they're the three big themes that are in the book. And I really am struck every time I meet someone who, who just has this basic level of understanding how much different it is uh, for the people who are working with them. Mm. And so your book covers a number of very, very interesting and, and topical issues like priority setting or, or direction, productivity, relationships, thinking, influence, resilience, and energy. Um, now, of course, we don't have time to go through them. Um, and by the way, I would advise everybody to buy your book or audiobook version, which you read yourself. I did, yes. Congratulations. <laughs> Four and a half days in a studio in, in, in London. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's very nice. I, I always really appreciate when it's the author, you know, reading their own book. I think it, it, it just gives such an extra added value. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. And I did try and write in a very conversational style. So it kind of would have been weird for someone else in a way to, to write it. But uh, yeah, it was one of the more uh, extreme and interesting experiences of my life, I think, to record it. <laughs> and so basically, I just wanted to ask you, if you could pick out maybe one tool 
or one technique that you feel had quite an important impact on you or you have observed it had an impact on, on an organization or someone else um, mm. that you would maybe just like to zoom in on now? Well, there's, I, I might cheat just a tiny bit in that there's a, there's a, there's a simple concept which actually has a couple of techniques that are linked to it, which is the fact that our reality is subjective. And this is really hard for us to imagine because, of course, we think that what we perceive is objective. And the way it works is that our brain is constantly filtering out uh, most of what's around us because if it had to process consciously every tiny piece of data, every contour of every object that's in your field of vision right now, every sensation that's in your body, it would crash like an overloaded computer because there's only so much conscious brain capacity. Our unconscious, our subconscious, has plenty of capacity, but the conscious part of our brain, what I call the deliberate system, has um, some quite significant capacity constraints. So we have this elegant system, which means that most of what's around us gets filtered out. And that helps us not be overloaded from time to time. But it also means we're all experiencing an edited, incomplete version of reality. It's, um, uh, you, you see interesting studies um, in selective attention that show that we can only pay attention to a certain number of things. And that if we are confronted with something which doesn't match what we're expecting, we'll probably filter it out and won't actually see it. And so that's amazingly uh, great news for us. I mean, the focus is almost always on, oh, we've got these quirks, we've got these biases, and isn't that terrible? But I always look for the opportunity in this knowledge. And this opportunity is enormous because what we tend to actually consciously notice matches what's already top of mind for us. So just being a bit more deliberate about what you have top of mind is going to shape the way that you perceive whatever is about to happen. So if you go into a meeting expecting someone to be a jerk, your brain will say, okay, so expectation that person is a jerk is top of mind. Therefore, I will make sure that you consciously notice every sign of person being jerk. And you don't notice the signs of them being a bit more conciliatory or human. And if you go in with a different intention, which is to say, okay, I am going to look for things that suggest there's a possibility of really working together on this project, you will experience the meeting differently. And that is amazing to me, really, the fact that you can edit your reality. I don't mean completely, but you can really choose to experience your reality differently. But then after the fact, the way that we remember things that have happened to us and the way that we perceive them can be edited afterwards too. So when you take the peak end effect, the fact that our memory of a day is very strongly what determines how we, you know, whether we think that we're having a good life or not. And we're strongly affected by the most intense moment and the end moment. So if you've had a bad day, choosing to end the day on a high note is a remarkably effective way of making sure that in your minds, uh, in your recollection of, uh, of the day, that you remember it differently, that you remember it more positively. And then there are other techniques 
such as reappraisal, which help you really um, attach a different story to what's happened. And again, research suggests that this isn't just fine words. You're actually really changing the way that your brain reacts to a difficult thing that's just happened. So as I said, this is a little bit of a cheat because these are all ways of acknowledging that our experience, our perception, and our memory of reality is up for grabs if we're a little bit more deliberate about it. And we just need to understand a few scientific concepts to point us towards a few techniques for that. No, absolutely. And, and I think that our lives are so multifaceted. We are constantly bombarded with so much information that, you know, some of it is, doesn't even register consciously. Exactly. But, but, but there's so much happening that, that it does wear you out also. And, and I have made a conscious decision um, on the 1st of January this year to, to stop watching news and reading news. So I'm very, I'm be, I've become an incredibly boring person, but much happier. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah, so the idea is that you, don't ha you, you only have certain capacity to process information. Why not uh, be more deliberate in choosing what information you take in? Absolutely. Yes, and, Absolutely. and I think that's also in work. You know, if if we can auto-filter, if you go into work and and you, you, you enter your open space and instead of, you know, I've had uh, colleague experiences like that, one colleague particularly who every day would come in and tell us the, you know, the horror story of the day of what happened in the supermarket, what happened in the elevator. And that would just set the whole collective mood on a very, very low level. Um, you know, instead of saying, you know, I've had maybe, I have seen uh, or experience things through this kind of dark filter, but maybe I don't need to load this off on all of my colleagues as well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I remember early in my uh, career at McKinsey, I had a young man working with me. It was my first project um, that I was actually managing myself on my own. And I would come in in the morning and, you know, I might have had a, a not particularly excellent commute. <laughs> and be spluttering about delays and so on. And he eventually took me aside and he said, you know, Caroline, the way that you behave has a disproportionate impact on the way that we feel. Even if we know logically that your bad mood is nothing to do with us, it kind of spreads. And, you know, he was absolutely right. It was a big aha moment for me. And of course, you know, I then went on and read all of the literature and the evidence on emotional contagion the fact that scientists massively disagree on exactly how it works but nobody disagrees that it exists that you know when someone comes into a room in a certain state of mind it can spread and so <laughs> so this uh, this this guy i think really um set me on the path on a certain sort of leadership style to recognize that you want to be authentic, but you also need to understand that you're, you, the way that you behave has an enormous impact on the people around you. Yes, and, and, as, and, and especially I think you have always people who others would, are looking up to and would like to emulate. And so there is a, 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 a quite a high degree of responsibility to not only, you know, f for that given day, but also perhaps the way this person influenced you to shape future leaders to shape future organizations because as they move on they will carry it with them so the impact is is much more than just you know ref referring to the title of your book have a good day but but this can actually snowball and and i think that, that that's what i'm 
I'm looking forward to to experiencing when there's going to be some kind of collective uh, transformation and, and it will snowball from one organization to another and into people's homes even. Yeah, I do. I do really hope that you know every manager, every leader, every future manager and leader who reads the book understands, can see the potential for using all of the techniques with their colleagues as well as on themselves. I mean, you know, what I was just talking about with the power of being more deliberate about what's top of mind, what I call setting intentions before you're going into a, a conversation with someone. Well, you can do that as a team, right? I mean, if you decide at the beginning not just to agree an agenda, which is, you know, yeah. <laughs> good practice, <laughs> but actually to say, okay, what are our intentions for this for this hour? Um, you don't have to be hokey about the language that you use. You can just say, you know, what do we really want to have top of mind as we go through this this thing that we're about to do together? And you can start to weave this into everyday um, ways of ways of doing things. And as you say, I really hope that this starts to spread and create something of a you know a, a positive revolution, because it really does take so little to change the way that we experience uh, what uh, what unfolds for us at work. And leaders really have so much control over the way that. Um, uh, a working environment feels so absolutely i'm looking forward to some very positive contagion on that front great now before we go to the last question um would you like to remind listeners uh, where and how they can reach out to you and where they can find the book oh how lovely thank you um i have a website which is carolineweb.co that's .co not .com and there are lots of Caroline Webbs in the world, it turns out. <laughs> which, you, which you find out once you write a book. <laughs> oh, my goodness, yeah. So carolineweb.co, there are a few nice things there for you. Uh, one is that you can read uh, a first chapter of the book for free on the website. You can also take a quiz called the Good Day Index, which gives you uh, both a score as to your chances of having a good day which is a little fun, but actually quite seriously, the, the quiz is structured so that you also then get one uh, useful tip from every single part of the book um, when you've taken the quiz. And then there's a monthly newsletter, which has lots of, I think, interesting new findings in uh, science and what it means for the workplace. Some, some of the pieces are written by me. And um, there's also... Uh, all of my social media information that's on there. And I do post every day something new um, that I, I found fascinating. So I hope that, uh, that people will, will stay in touch in that way. And uh, I, I look forward to, um, to hearing how the book is going down with people. Yes, I think that would be so fantastic to, to get um, you know, the fan mail when people ex tell you how this yeah. love transformed. I, it would be just worth you know, speaking to you again in a year and and see you know what what people have experienced oh it's, it's already lovely i have to say it's really i mean i wrote the book because i knew that i could only coach a certain number of people in my life and that you know if i wanted to make a bigger difference then i needed to think uh, about uh, a, be a better way of, of scaling the impact that i could possibly have and it's just been wonderful it's been so uplifting to hear the stories coming back um through twitter and through facebook and through actually sometimes people directly contacting me via the website so it's been wonderful and i welcome all the stories great and we will of course put your contact details into the show notes of the podcast 
Um, and now coming to the last question that we always ask uh, the same question here on the Work Life Podcast. If I could ask you, Caroline, to give one advice to a CEO to make a difference in his or her organization for people to actually have a good day and many good days, what would be your one advice? It would be to recognize that better performance is not about working harder or longer and that for people's brains to function at their best, they need to take breaks. So breaks are not uh, a nice to have, a kind of soft thing. They're, they're like a pit stop for your brain. You know, if you think like a car race, they're a chance to consolidate uh, learning and insight from all the research that we know People simply think better, solve problems more effectively, have greater creativity if they're able to step away before returning to whatever it is that they're working on. So if I could encourage leaders to be not only supportive of people having strategic downtime, as I call it, Mm -hmm. but also be visibly doing it themselves so that they're really uh, modeling the fact that brains function best when they have downtime. That would be a wonderful thing. Fantastic. I think this should be just framed. <laughs> just as you said, <laughs> I hung up everybody's, this, um, every CEO's office. <laughs> Thank you so much, Caroline. Really appreciate you took the time to explain more about the concepts and, and share your stories. And I wish you um, all the best with the book and, and, your, and your work and your career. Thank you so much, Agnes. This has been a lovely conversation and I wish you a very good day. (laughs) 